Well, we are looking at Genesis chapters 35 and 36 this morning, which means that we're not looking at Genesis chapter 34, which is good news. It also means that we are bringing to an end the stories of Jacob and Esau, which began in chapter 25, quite a ways back. You might remember uh, that Genesis can be divided into four basic sections. The whole book, Genesis chapters 1 through 11, begins with the creation of humanity and takes us to the scattering of humanity over the face of the earth. And we see that mankind is sinful and deserving of God's judgment in those chapters. In chapters 12 to 24, God calls Abraham and tells him that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the covenant of grace. This is a covenant of grace that, that uh, in, in Galatians, Paul will say, is God preaching the gospel to Abraham? So Old Testament covenant of grace equals gospel of Jesus Christ. And that covenant of grace is made available to Abraham. It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so we see that God has not only determined that men are sinners by their sin, but has provided a gospel of grace. Chapters 25 to 36, or 35, and we're going to tack on 36 about Esau, is the account of Jacob and Esau focusing on Jacob, who's not very encouraging. But God is gracious to Jacob. So we see that the gospel is for sinners. That's the point. And then chapters 37 to 50, which we'll get to beginning next week, is the story of Joseph. And we can't wait to get to Joseph because I just don't think we can take much more of Jacob. <laughs> Joseph's life, when we get there next week, will appear strikingly Christ-like. All the more after having looked at Jacob for a long time as we have. So Moses, who's our, who's our author, has structured Genesis to show us that we are sinners deserving God's judgment that God is gracious and has provided the gospel of grace to us in Jesus Christ, and that that gospel is for sinners, just like Jacob and just like us. And he will, when we get there to the story of Joseph, paint a, a beautiful portrait of what Jesus looks like in the story of Joseph. So looking forward to that. So chapter 35 this morning wraps up, if you will, the story of Jacob. Not that Jacob dies, not yet. He'll be with us till the end of Genesis. Uh, but, but Moses, the author, is, is wrapping up the several loose ends that really conclude Jacob's story. Jacob's going to be in the background as the father of Joseph from now on. And chapter 36 wraps up the story of Esau by listing his descendants. You know, there's that phrase that shows that we're starting a new section in chapter 36, the generations of Esau. It's one of those Bible chapters that we're tempted to skip. But there's reason for us not to skip it. We know that because it's in the Bible. In fact, if you, were to, if you were to look there real quick, you'll see that chapter 36 begins with that, hey, this is a new story, that phrase, these are the generations of Esau. And then if you look down to verse 9, it's repeated. These are the generations of Esau. It's the only place where that toll dot, where that these are the generations, is repeated. Repetition is emphasis. Moses won't even let us skip the chapter. He says, read this chapter. I'm highlighting it for you. And so if you would, follow along using your sermon outline. And you'll see this theme. God is gracious to the worst of sinners who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And though our sanctification in this life may be slow and involve suffering, living in the gracious presence of God is the place to be. So let's begin. I'm going to read Genesis chapter 35 for us. 
God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to the Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I make, make there an altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and their earrings and that were, that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled his brother. And Deborah, Rachel's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram, and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken to him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor. And she had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Yudair. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob are twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aran. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him.
Well, Jacob's story comes full circle, if you will. Jacob's story of transformation began at Bethel, and now it ends at Bethel. And there's more here than just a hodgepodge of random things, although you can look at it that way. There's really structure here. Jacob is retracing his grandfather Abraham's steps when he obeyed the call of God and entered the land. From Shechem to Bethel, through Ephrath or Bethlehem, to Mamre at Hebron, where Isaac is. Jacob is moving, if you will, from the border of the land towards the interior of the land. From the, from the edge of a promise to the middle of a promise. He's moving from a lack of godliness towards God and his grace and his people. Moses intends us to see this movement in Jacob's life. And something else happens at each place. A burial. A burial. There are four burials, only three deaths, but four burials in chapter 35, which Moses uses to show us that the old things are passing away. The old things are passing away. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Esau are passing away. There are new things to come, like the birth of Benjamin and the story of Joseph. So Moses shows Jacob as a man journeying towards God's gospel blessing. For years, Jacob did not take God's gospel covenant seriously, but now he is. Now he is. The context of God's call for Jacob to go to Bethel is the immediate aftermath of Simeon and Levi's slaughter of the Shechemites and Jacob's fear of reprisal from the surrounding Canaanites. That's what he was afraid of, remember? It's at this low point I mean, really low point. We're not going to go back to last Sunday. We're going, to, we're going to stay right here. But it was a low point when God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who had appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And so Jacob is, Jacob is in a downward spiral in chapter 34. But God calls him, Arise, go up and worship God. That's the right direction. And look what, look what needs to take place to prepare to worship God. They have to purify themselves. Where did they get all these foreign gods and earrings and idols? I mean, these are the people of God, right? Well, some of Jacob's clan may have picked them up, living too close to Shechem. Maybe Rachel still had her father's household idols under the saddle. But the Shechemite women and children are also part of Jacob's camp now, aren't they? Remember? After the slaughter of all the men, all of the other brothers went and took everyone and everything and brought them into Jacob's camp. That was the plundering of Shechem to prosper Jacob by the sword, not by faith, but by the sword. They're there with their pagan gods and pagan dress and pagan ornamentation, and Jacob's people are wearing some of the same things they plundered. And they need to put away the old and put on the new. This is, this is not just a, hey, we're, we're heading towards Bethel. We need a general purification here. Seems like the right thing to do. This is a specific act of repentance for their sins at Shechem. Following God is to forsake your sins. Jacob says, we will not walk with God while wearing these clothes or wearing their earrings or carrying their idols. You know, family idols come from the culture that the family lives in, whether then or now. 
Jacob was living too near Shechem. And Jacob's sons took his treasure, the things of Shechem, and put them on and wore them. You see, an idol is something that we put in God's place, right? You get that picture. This is where God belongs in our hearts, but we put this idol here instead. We put it in a place of worship. And because of that, sometimes we think our idol is actually good. Tear it down. Jacob calls them to tear it down. He gathers up all the pagan stuff and he hides it under the terebinth tree, which means he buries it. He digs a hole and he buries it. Dead gods that cannot even keep themselves from being buried by a human and cannot resurrect themselves. They can't dig their way back out through the dirt. They've been left there for archaeologists to find. That's what we're to do with our sin. That's how we're to repent from our sin. We're to separate from it so that nobody but an archaeologist will ever connect that to us because we're putting it long gone. When God calls us and God says, follow me, we repent of our sins and we purify ourselves in obedience to him. And we see it here in Jacob's story. This is the first burial that takes place before they even leave Shechem. This is the one where nobody died except, hopefully, the people's sin. They have to repent of their idolatry and bury their unbelief and then journey towards Bethel to worship God who is with them and who calls them out of their distress. Now, what's the, what's the main distress that Jacob has right now? The thing that Jacob is distressed about at that time actually never comes to pass. Remember, in chapter 34, verse 30, he said, you know, Simeon, Levi, you've really messed things up here. My numbers are few, and if they, the Canaanites, gather themselves against me and attack me, I'll be destroyed. So how does God respond to Jacob and his family's repentance? With more grace. God brings a terror upon the Canaanites so that they would be afraid to attack Jacob as he makes his exit and heads towards Bethel. It's like when God told Abraham in Genesis 15 after rescuing Lot, Lot, fear not, I'm your shield. I'm your shield. And when they arrived at Bethel, Jacob built an altar and they worshiped God. And God shows his confidence in the grace of God by doubling down on his naming of the place. Over 20 years ago, he named it Bethel, house of God. Now he names it El, Bethel, God of the house of God. He just doubles down on his belief and commitment to God who's been gracious to him and brought him all the way back to this same spot. Then there's this seemingly random news in verse 8. Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. And they bury her there at Bethel. Wait, who died? Deborah. When Abraham sent his servant to get a wife for Isaac, the servant came back with Rebekah and her nurse, Deborah. Oh, where did she come from? When did she join Jacob's camp? You know, at what point in, in Jacob's journeyings did, did she show up? We don't know. We don't know. But, but two things come to mind. The first is, 
Here's Rebecca's nurse. But where's Rebecca? Where's Jacob's mom? Rebecca's gone. The last time we saw her, she sent Jacob off to escape Esau. But Deborah's passing reminds us that Rebecca has already passed away. She's already off the scene. Jacob never saw her again. She never saw Jacob again. Deborah would have been Jacob and Esau's, we would probably say, nanny. That's what she would have been. They would have been very close. Jacob would have spent countless hours with her as a boy. She would have taught him, cared for him, played with him, loved him. And I think Jacob would have to be sad, even lonely, as the old things start to pass away probably pretty lonely right about now. And so Jacob names the tree where he buried her, Oak of Sorrow. He's sorrowful. Now this, these verses, chapter 35, verses 1 to 8, this is a revival. This is revival taking place in Jacob's life. God calls him and he repents and he follows God. He's no longer passively indifferent as he was in chapter 34. He's leading his family. He's leading his whole camp in repentance and leading them to the grace and worship of God. Still, he experiences the suffering of sorrow in the death of Deborah and the silent realization that his mother, Rebecca, is also gone. When we pick up in verse 9 and move the story forward a little bit, God extends his covenant to Israel and and we kind of... You know, how many times is God going to repeat this covenant? You know, we've, haven't we already heard all of these things? God responds to Jacob with grace and more grace. He responds to Jacob's repentance, not only by preserving him from the, the warring tribes around him, but by repeating his covenant, repeating his gospel to him. In verse 9, God appears to Jacob and he blesses Jacob. It seems a little anticlimactic to us, Seems a little redundant to us because we've seen, we've seen all these promises made to Jacob before. But this actually is the climactic moment in Jacob's life. After his miserable failures, he's, he's arisen and gone up in revival, and now God gives him this gospel to carry on. This climactic moment in Jacob's life, all of the significant moments of Jacob's life come together and they're repeated here. They're emphasized here. Moses is presenting Jacob to us as a transformed man. And it's as if God's covenant transfer is, is official now. It, it finally took. Okay. It's, it's finally official and in place. And in verse 10, Jacob gets a new name, Israel. It was mentioned before in chapter 32. In verse 11, God refers to himself as El Shaddai. I am Almighty God. That's, that's happened only once before back in verse or excuse me, chapter 17, and God says, be fruitful and multiply, which is from Genesis chapter 1. And and then God says, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, Jacob, which is the same thing that was promised to Abraham back in Genesis 17. And kings, kings will come from your own body. In verse 6 of chapter 17. And in verse 12, God gives Jacob the land he promised to Abraham and Isaac and promises to give it to his seed after him. 
We need to, we need to notice this phrase, a company of nations, in verse 12. A company of nations. How will Jacob father a company, a multitude of nations, as in more than one? We know how Abraham will father a company of nations when the promise was made to him. In addition to the promised line of Isaac, Abraham fathered nations through Ishmael. After Sarah, his wife, died, he took Keturah as a wife and fathered nations through her. So we see how Abraham fathered the nation that's, that's Isaac and others. We get that. But what about Jacob? Jacob has 12 sons, and they will all become just one nation. Israel. Israel. So where do the other nations come from so that he's uh, the father of a company of nations? You see, Jacob's company of nations points to Gentiles who will be brought into the nation of Israel through faith in the promises and will consider Jacob their father. Which points to even further ahead, to Jesus bringing Jews and Gentiles into his kingdom. So this is the climax of Jacob's story right here. God's covenant is established with Israel. Jacob responds by worship, by setting up a pillar, by anointing it with oil, by pouring out a, a, a drink offering upon it, and again affirming that this place is God's house, Bethel. The movement continues in verse 16. Now Jacob leaves Bethel, heading home to his father Isaac in Hebron, passing through Ephrath, which means Bethlehem. There, Rachel gives birth to another son. Remember when she gave birth to Joseph? When Joseph was born, she asked God for another son? I want another. And here God answers her by giving her another son. But it's a hard labor. And her, with her dying breath, Rachel names him Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. But Jacob calls him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Rachel was close to Jacob, his right hand. It could be translated son of my love. This is the, the third burial at the end of Jacob's story. He's lost his beloved wife, Rachel. He set up a pillar over her tomb and as a marker, and Jacob's grieving. It's natural for the old things to pass away and the new things to come. Jacob is glad for Benjamin to come. He will treasure the son of his love, but he will miss Rachel. He will miss Rachel. There's things we don't like about Jacob, but one of the things that that we would understand about Jacob was Jacob would be that guy who could say, I can do anything with Rachel by my side. I can do anything with my wife by my side. Verse 22 then seems to drop out of nowhere. Reuben, the firstborn, commits sexual sin with Bilhah, his father's concubine and the mother of his two stepbrothers, Dan and Naphtali. And Israel heard of it. And we're left to wonder if Israel said or did anything about it. But we have, this, we have this piece of information. Maybe maybe Jacob was weakened over his grief over Rachel because 
This is nothing short of rebellion by Reuben, the firstborn. He's asserting himself as the leader to replace his father and take control of the family. It seems that Jacob's first three sons have disqualified themselves from carrying on the promised line. Reuben, number one, by sexual sin. Simeon and Levi, numbers two and three, by violence. Judah's next in line, birth order in any way. Jacob is suffering sorrow upon sorrow at the close of his story. And then the fourth burial is that of his father Isaac. There's no account of their reunion, is there? There's no no prodigal son story, no hugs, no kisses mentioned. Was there a reunion? I mean, when Isaac sent Jacob away over 20 years ago, he was already saying that his eyes were dim and that he was in a hurry to bless Esau before he died. We don't, we don't know. We just don't know what that reunion might have been like. It's a grief that Isaac, Isaac has died. It's also a grief that nothing said about the reunion. But the days of Isaac were 180 years when he breathed his last, and Isaac, like his father Abraham, was gathered to his people, old and full of days, blessed of God. When Abraham died, remember, Isaac and Ishmael together buried him. And, and after Abraham's burial in chapter 25, it, it was followed by the genealogy then of Ishmael, the not the line. Similarly, when Isaac dies, Jacob and Esau get together and they bury their father. And Isaac's burial in chapter 35 is followed by the genealogy of Esau, the not the line, in chapter 36. Now, even though Jacob has lived this tragic life, his story closes with just another thunk, doesn't it? Just clunk. We have the names of his sons listed, though. That's the upshot. All 12 sons of Israel. But they're there for a reason. They're right They're right next to Esau's list of sons for a reason. So that we would compare these 12 names with these 73 names of Esau's descendants. I mean, one kind of weighs more than the other, doesn't it? 12 names, 73 names. Place them on the scales. One's more impressive than the other. And and the key to understanding chapter 36 is just to go ahead and look at verse 31 first. Chapter 36, verse 31. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. One of these nations is growing quickly. One of these nations is prospering quickly. One of these nations just seems to be marking time. Let's read Verse 36, oh yea. Let's read chapter 36. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Oholibamah, the daughter of Enah, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite. And Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Adah bore to Esau... Eliphaz, Basimor bore Ruel, and Oholibamah bore Jeush, 
Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau. Ruel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Adah's Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, the daughter of Enah, the, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau Jewash, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son. The chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Besamath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife. The chiefs Jewash. Jalam and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholibama, the daughter of Enna, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Enna, Dishan, Ezer, Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Horai and Hemam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Manahath, Ebal, Shepo, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Ea, and Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Anna, Dishan, and Aholibama, daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishan, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Cheran. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zaavan, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Dizbion, Enna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. Before any king reigned over the Israelites, Bela, son of Beor, reigned in Edom the name of his city being Dinhabath. Bela died, and Johab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. Joab died, and Husham, the of the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samlah of Masrachah, reigned in his place. Samlah died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal Hanan, 
the son of Achbor, reigned in his place. Bahalanan, the son of Achbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mesahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names, the chiefs of Timnah, Alva, Jethath, Oholibama, Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Teman, Mizbar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. There is one more verse. The first verse of chapter 37 should really be the last verse of chapter 36. It simply says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. So Esau married Canaanite women and grew his family. He and his family assimilated into Canaanite culture. You get that, right? They did not stay separate. They assimilated into Canaanite culture. They wore Canaanite clothes and Canaanite earrings and carried Canaanite idols to Canaanite places of worship because Esau never valued the things of God. Then Esau took all of his family and his possessions that he had acquired in Canaan, acquired from God. What? Yes, acquired from God. Remember when Rebekah inquired of God about the struggle in her womb? And God said, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. God elected Jacob to be his covenant nation, but God also blessed and prospered Esau to make him a mighty nation as well. Esau has everything that a man of the world could want. But what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Look at how Esau's property is described. He became a great nation. He comes to possess his own land. And kings spring forth from him. These are the same terms used to describe God's covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Land, seed, and kings. But there's one missing. Did you notice what it is? Blessing. Esau received these things from God. But Esau would not receive God himself. When Esau walked out of the land, he walked away from the blessing. He walked away from the covenant. He walked away from the promises. He walked away from the gospel. He walked out of the gracious presence of God. In fact, Esau literally walks off the pages of Scripture. We won't see his name again, except for, except for one mention in Hebrews as an example of unbelief. Esau walks out of the pages of Scripture. He's walked away from the promise of salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? Remember when Jacob and Esau met and, and Jacob offered him all these generous gifts of flocks? He's bowing down before him and flock after flock after flock is coming to Esau as a gift. No wonder Esau said, no thanks, I'm all set. I don't need your gifts, Jacob. I've got plenty. 
Jacob was trying to bless Esau with the blessing of God, but worldly men don't need or want the grace of God. What happens to worldly people like Esau who reject God? Well, often they prosper. Remember the descendants of Cain? I know we have to go back a ways, but remember the descendants of Cain? They amassed livestock, they established culture, they forged industry. Remember the descendants of Ishmael? They were 12 princes, they were royalty and majesty. And Esau's descendants are chiefs and kings, powerful ruling men. It will be generations before Israel even has a king. In fact, in the next chapter, chapter 37, while Joseph is a slave in a foreign land, his cousins, Uncle Esau's kids, will be ruling as kings in their own land that they possess. What is God doing? Why does God, God's work in Israel take so long and involve so much suffering? You wonder that about your own life. Why do the wicked prosper? You know, when God made his covenant of grace with Abraham, he told Abraham in chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, Know for certain, Abraham, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. What? I didn't remember that. Edom doesn't care about the promises of God, gets rich quick. Israel has to suffer for 400 years and maybe get rich slow. Why? Well, God explains in verse 16 of chapter 15. And they shall come back here. Israel shall come out of Egypt back into the promised land in the fourth generation For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's the reason. We need to understand that God is working on God's own time. Here are the people of God suffering. And here are the not people of God doing whatever they want. You can look out your window and you'll see this. What's happening? God is allowing these people's sin to fill up and ripen. And then his judgment will fall upon them. And these, these people will be that judgment. But first, God's people must learn that the difference between them And them is the grace of God. It's the only difference. Trials and affliction and suffering remind us that we're no better than anyone else. And they force us to keep trusting in God himself. 
for two reasons. So that when God's judgment falls on the ungodly, we will know that he is just. And that in our suffering, we will long for the righteousness and the holiness of God. Our suffering is not a mishap. God has not mismanaged any aspect of your life. It is the very grace of God weaning us away from all earthly things. Weaning us away from every comfort. Even the comfort of our families. God's people love God for himself. Not simply for the things he does for us. We must come to declare as the psalmist does in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. kingdom of man seems pretty impressive. 73 names, chiefs, kings, and possessions. Isn't it the smart people who choose to love the world and the things in the world? Aren't they the smart ones? Isn't their success proven by their tax returns? Is it their evidence? But God shames the wisdom of man with his folly. And God shames the strength of man with his weakness. God is not working in the nation of the chiefs and kings. He's not working there. God is working in this one man and his 12 sons wandering in a land that he doesn't even own so that God can build an eternal kingdom. We may think that we're the patient ones. Look at us all here this morning making great sacrifices as we wait for God to catch up with us. We think we're the patient ones. No. God is the patient one. We are his workmanship. He is the one who has hold of us, graciously crafting us into the image of his son. God is the forbearing one, holding back his just wrath and pouring out his grace, not just on us, but on generation after generation after generation. God is the one who sacrificed his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to wash our hands clean and purify our hearts so that we then might ascend the hill of the Lord. He is the committed one. In Christ, God is committed to a longer, 
deeper, wider work in your life, he is producing an eternal redemption and a complete restoration. Not just of you, but as of his entire creation. And one day he will take us home to be with him to the praise of his glorious grace. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world, for this world is passing away. Walk with God who calls you. Sojourn together in this world which is not your home. Walk in God's gracious presence and say, Lord Jesus, who have I in heaven? but you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for taking what seems to us the long way around to show us in this man's life, Jacob, that you have given your son for sinners, that you give grace to sinners, that you are gracious to your people, and we'll keep all of your promises to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to see him, to look to him, to walk with him for your glory. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.